0: Welcome to you, A.B. adams Prussell, and uh, welcome to you, Jeremias adams Prussell. It's my big pleasure to have you with us here today uh, in this Ask Bonus session. Both of you um, are are uh, well-known researchers in your field. And both of you are uniquely well-known researchers for one peculiar reason for which I admire you both a lot. Both of you are ESC grant holders. Uh, and, and this is such a rare species that, that one uh, feels very privileged in meeting one of them. But in this case, I even meet two of them, which is really outstanding. And um, and I admire you and I congratulate you most warmly for this for this uh, really, really impressive um, achievement. A B, to start with you first, uh, AB is Associate Professor and Senior Research Fellow at the University of Oxford. Her background is uh, economics, in particular um, behavioral economics, and she is among many other things that are most interesting, uh, the, the co-founder of the COVID-19 uh, Inequality Project, which is a project uh, dealing with the economic impact um, on, of the crisis and the differences in the economic impact in different societies and with different stakeholders. Very, very pleased to have you with us. Um, and Jeremias uh, Jeremias is a lawyer from from his background. Um, He uh, also works at the University of Oxford as a professor of law. Um, His his expertise is mainly in, but not only, in European and in labor law. Um, I had the privilege to meet him at several occasions. Uh, One of them, uh, he was one of the um uh one of the most impressive speakers i ever met at the university of vienna when it came to platform economical issues and labor law um and we also met um at the uh at in Altbach. Altbach is uh, one of the i don't know think tanks or summer university events uh the Austrians might know where uh, jeremias gave um a seminar on on uh his topics, which is, um, as I said, Europe mainly European and labor law in the platform economy. I most warmly recommend to you um, his uh, book, Humans as a Service. I also had the privilege to talk uh, with him already about this book about, I don't know, about two years ago. Uh, So prior to the crisis, but uh, many of the the points that uh, Jeremias writes about in this uh, this book are more um, evident now than they might have been in, in 2018. So thank you for being here. Um, I'm happy to tell you that we also have some people uh, who followed us to this strange environment here already. So some of you are live here. I'm, 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 I'm a little bit relieved about this. Um, let me start with you, A.B. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about uh, this uh, specific focus uh, on COVID and inequality in your research and what the major outcomes are so far, and perhaps also a little bit about how you think that the law should react on on your outcomes, as far as you can tell.
1: That's a great question. And um, yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to, um, to talk to you. So um, together with colleagues at the University of Cambridge and the University of Zurich, starting in mid-March last year, so just as the first lockdowns were starting to be introduced um, across across Europe, we ended up running a series of surveys really trying to understand what the labor market impacts of the COVID-19 crisis were. So trying to understand which types of workers were most affected, how was policy helping this or hindering it? And also to what degrees were different countries able to kind of smooth this shock in different ways. Um, and I guess just to give you, we so we ran three surveys over the summer. Um, we're now uh, just gearing up for a new round of surveys. So um, yeah, there'll be kind of more more results out um, in the next kind of month or so. But in terms of what we found um last last year I think the key things are that um, across countries the labour market impacts of COVID-19 have been very different especially at the beginning of the crisis in terms of how do the lockdowns and social distancing affect um, income uh, workers across the income distribution differently so we see that um, in like that, workers in Germany were much better protected by the uh, state response uh, than in the US and the UK. Um, Another key dimension that we've been really interested in um, is the gender impacts of this crisis. So if you compare the recession that we've been living through over the past year to those in the past, um, this this recession has very different characteristics, both in terms of the sectors and the occupations that have been hit, but also of course, how this is not just an economic crisis, it's spilled over into how we live our, you know, into domestic life. Um, the kind of school closures, disruption to childcare have had a huge impact on families and the degree to which men and women with children especially can work. Um, and so uh, starting in September last year, I was also, I've been a special advisor to the UK Parliament Uh, select committee on women inequalities trying to understand a little bit more about how are the different policies that have been put in place hindered um, perhaps like or have they accentuated gender gender inequalities or have they helped to mitigate them Uh, there's a yeah we'll be putting our report out next week Um, so I I guess that's kind of the background to the work that we found that the work I've been doing Mm-hmm. i'll let Jeremiah talk potentially more about the law but i think that just like in terms of one thing i'll say at this point um what we've seen in terms of especially the the dimensions of inequality in the us and the uk keep coming back to the fact that workers who were less protected like lots of the in terms of who's be, who was most affected in the us and the uk labor markets a lot of it was entirely predictable given fragmentation and the inequality which existed prior to COVID-19 hitting. So a lot of what's happened is an accentuation of existing inequalities, especially around the labor protection. So individuals on uh, temporary zero hours contracts and those who were self-employed, especially the so-called solo self-employed or the the sham self-employed I so think gig economy, think self-employed people who aren't, um, employ, aren't, aren't um, em- employing other workers, they'd be most likely to be badly affected. And at least in the UK, I can say this, the most likely to fall through the gaps in the government response systems to this as they don't qualify for furlough often. And often they also miss out for self-employment income support schemes. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'll leave this to Jeremiah some more depth, but I also think that this is not just a crisis now, like some of the trends that we're seeing now are gonna persist into the future. And I think that means that there's a lot of things that labor lawyers need to grapple with and getting on there early in terms of working from home, in terms of employment protection, um, and also in terms of how we think about the regulation of flexible flexible work um, are gonna be really key coming out of this.
0: Yeah, but before before we start talking about the law, perhaps one more question about the, the empirical basis. As far as I understand the situation, you are comparing the US, the UK, and Germany in particular. Yeah. Uh, why these three? And, and what are the most significant differences? In particular, I would be very interested to compare the German with the UK situation, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Yeah.
1: So these are the three countries that uh, the team had pre-existing um, mm-hmm links links to so that I think is the the, 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 the honest answer I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also quite interesting because even if we think about um, the kind of like the flagship employment response which mm-hmm. um, has been uh, it's called the furlough scheme or the coronavirus job retention scheme in the UK which is a little bit like kurzarbeit in Germany mm-hmm. um, and then in in, in the US, Instead, what we had was a so-called recall unemployment scheme. So rather than a short-time work scheme, what in the U.S. the policy was, was that individuals who um, like the, like, would not would have other the equivalent they would have been put on. They would have been put on short-time work in Europe. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., they became unemployed but we were able to kind of, it, it was kind of like a it's, it, they're called, it's called recall unemployment. It's kind of this like funny scheme, but basically you have this let go, you, like for, more workers will let go in the US. Mm-hmm. And so I think understanding, especially as I say, like one of the focuses I've been looking at is the gender dimension. Mm-hmm. There you really do see big differences. So in the UK, well, the US especially, like the differences in job loss between men and women have been massive massive Mm -hmm. whereas what we find in Germany is something much 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 more muted Mm -hmm. and again I think as well we think that in the UK now um, you know our system is not of short time work scheme is not as well established as Kurzarbeit we've moved much closer to that system Mm -hmm. over the crisis and again Mm -hmm. what we were seeing at the beginning of the crisis was um, a much like a much greater impact and differentiation by men and women and that has become slightly different as more you know as basically these short time work schemes have been able to kind of smooth over some of uh, some of these difficulties that um that um men and women women have been having The the final thing I'll say on this is also just in terms of we think about um the um, uh, system of employment protection that we have in these different countries, and how especially the self, how self employment fits into fits into this. So we do see in all countries that workers that are not in a standard employment relationship so be that temporary be that with variable hours that workers don't control or be that in a kind of um, a vulnerable self-employment relationship we find in all countries Mm -hmm. that workers in more vulnerable situations have been more likely to lose uh, to lose income and have faced kind of hours losses however what we also see is that the extent of those losses is just much less in Germany
0: <laughs> than
1: mm-hmm. um, in the Anglo-Saxon countries,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and that's something as well that you that that, that you saw um, during um, uh, during the financial crisis as well.
0: Yeah, and and why is this is this because of the of the differences in the legal system, or is it more because of the the the, the, the social uh, involvement of, of the the relevant parts of the population, or 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 is this not part of your research, and it's, it's it still needs to be done. So I'm so
1: a lot of what I do is um, is empirical, and it's often really difficult to come mm-hmm. to like a precise answer about what are the thi- what are the precise factors empirically mm-hmm. which are really important here. Um, all I can say is that the work that I've uh, that the, the work that I've done shows that timing has really, really mattered in mm-hmm. this crisis. Mm-hmm. The fact that quotes are bite like the fact that the like in the German labor market there were a lot of schemes which were up and ready to go instantly. I think mm-hmm. really, really helped to smooth that shock right. You know, at the beginning of last year, which has had consequences then throughout the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, in the UK, it took us a lot longer to get our um, short time work scheme up and running. And then the precise design of that scheme, to be honest, was quite awful at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was better than nothing, mm-hmm. but you weren't allowed. So in compared to Quizzabite, um, workers in the UK, either you had to be working your full normal hours for your employer or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, now that led. Yeah, so that was just um, led to some very, very strange behavior, to be mm-hmm. honest, um, both by employers, by workers. Um, luckily, now that's that's not the case. We are able to have flexi- more flexible reductions in hours now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I mean, it, it took until July for that to happen.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is there any political debate in the UK happening on this at the moment? So, if 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 your figures are debated in public, is do people care about that, or is it just you know some kind of background noise for, for the for the really important things happening in politics? Or how would you how would you assess this?
1: I, I mean, so we we're there's a big discussion going on right now about. Mm-hmm. Our furloughs, our short-time work scheme is due to end in April. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've had this continual system as well because we haven't, we don't have this established scheme. There's a continual, when is it going to end? When is it going to end? When is it going to end, which really does create a huge amount of uncertainty for firms about how to plan and like Mm -hmm. to what degree can they keep workers on? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very much a live issue right now. So the key, if you like, kind of economics that's going on in the debate at the moment is if this is if social distancing and lockdowns are going to be part of our lives for Mm -hmm. still at least the short term, maybe the medium term. Mm -hmm actually, are we just up uh, through subsidizing, you know, workers staying with firms which can't operate under social distancing? Are we just delaying the inevitable pain and mm-hmm. therefore spending lots of money on just keeping people in these almost zombie firms? Mm-hmm. And actually, wouldn't, wouldn't it just be better for people to start moving to firms which are viable in a social distancing type world? Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, of course, that knocks out a huge amount of hospitality of and of sales in the service sector mm-hmm. which disproportionately employ those on lower incomes women um and uh, and, and and migrants so mm-hmm. like those at the bottom of society so i think it's and are you just going to let the whole of hospitality just kind of go by the wayside for a couple of you know for for, for a year it's, it's unclear like as well the degree of um Uh, like how long term those costs will end up being Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing which is a big debate at the moment is the degree to which um, uh, is the degree to which our benefit system in the UK needs to be updated to reflect what's going on Mm -hmm. so basically since 2010 with austerity we've had a series of shifts in the way that our social security system works such that to quote people giving evidence to the UK Parliament Select Committees, our benefit system is at its bare bones. Mm. Um, and we've had, again, these ad hoc top ups, mm. this £20 a week top up um, through the uh, through the crisis up until right now. And the question is, case of What's, what's going to happen with that going forward? Is that going to become permanent? Is it not? Especially if what they do is they end furlough and lots of people who've been on 80% of their salaries whilst not working for almost a year now move on to our benefit system. That's going to be a huge income shock for a lot of people. Um, so the key, I think, thing which is going on in politicians' mind at the moment is it's really just trying to guess like we all are how long is this going on? And to what degree is this the new normal versus something where we can slowly transition into normal times again in a few months?
0: hmm and it's very hard to tell, right? <laughs> it yeah, is. No,
1: I've given up yeah. trying
0: to predict at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but does that have any impact? I mean, the uncertainty in which all of us are at the moment, does that have any impact on the planning of your research in this field? So, how do you deal personally with this at the moment? Is it, I mean, it's, I mean,
1: that's such a good question because um, we, uh, so, we, we designed our, our next set of surveys um, mm-hmm. to go, they were supposed to be going out last October and November. Mm-hmm. But the way that the funding agency had wanted it was that, that parts of some of the surveys were in recovery time. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up putting off the ones in November because we're definitely not in a recovery now. We're about to go into lockdown again. Mm-hmm. But of course, we've got to this point and it's like, Okay, we're we're still in lockdown. I, I think we just start need to start running surveys again. Uh-huh. Um, so no, it, ha- it has impacted quite a lot. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I think all of us have are are fighting with these issues at the moment when we when we do research in this field. But Jeremy as, I mean, a lot of what we have been talking about so far does have an impact on the on on the legislative system, obviously, and on the. Uh, on the way, how lawyers deal with the situation. Let us perhaps start um, with uh, a brief description where you come from, Jeremy. So perhaps the starting point of your, your picture that you see when you look on the COVID-19 crisis, I would assume is one which is very heavily influenced by, by this, I have mentioned it already, terrific book, Humans as a Service, which deals with in how far the labor market has changed in the last years because of these platforms um, and and similar developments uh, coming with digitalization and the internet. So what was the starting point and where do we stand from your perspective today?
2: Thank you, Nicolas. And I think there's one sort of a logic thing that comes out of the work on the gig economy and one thing that's quite counterintuitive. Um, So I think the background to think about the gig economy was that There was always this narrative that technology and and digitalization would lead to completely new labor market structures, this Mm. idea that, you know, using platforms to intermediate work would somehow create an entirely new future of work, a new model of organizing the labor market. The reality is that the kind of trends that we see in the gig economy have been going on for 10, 20, 30 years. The sort of taking Mm. of the traditional relationship between an employer, her workers and the customers. And the sort of fragmenting and breaking that up into individual tasks Mm -hmm. is something we've seen for decades. So you Mm -hmm. see this through labor outsourcing. um, You see this through various corporate chains. You see this through instantiations of fixed term or part time work. And so one thing that was always really interesting about the gig economy was that even though the technology was new, the kind of labor market challenges we saw weren't particularly novel. In a Mm -hmm. sense, they were sort of, you know, sexier and suddenly people, you know, nobody was interested in in talks about um, agency labor, but suddenly people were interested in talks about Uber and Deliveroo and Fedora, Mm -hmm. but the underlying labor market challenges were the same. Mm -hmm. And I think if you sort of had to bring, as it were, the labor market and the economics together, what had been happening in the labor market is that we'd seen a massive shift of risk. Mm -hmm. We'd seen a massive shift of risks that's always inherent in the market from employers, from the market in general to the individual employee, right? So you think about this, if I run a beautiful cafe in Vienna, I've got a risk every morning whether people will turn up or not. I need to choose whether I am gonna to have to staff in, just sitting around waiting there and then have to pay them. And so what we saw through the gig economy was just an acceleration of various trends where we try and shift that business risk onto the individual, right? So rather than running a cafe, I could then say, well, I'm just a coffee and cake platform And each Mm -hmm. individual worker can come in and then, you know, if somebody orders something, she can go and complete that kind of job. Mm -hmm. Now, what that ends up doing in the short term is it ends up saving costs for employers. Because it means that, you know, those downtimes, you no longer have to pay for that. You only pay the individual as and when they're actually immediately economically active. The real problem that lurks underneath this is that individuals can't really diversify their risk portfolio. Right? So what ends up happening, imagine if I'm an employer, big taxi company with lots of taxis. Well, if any one driver has got a passenger at the moment, it doesn't really matter to me because overall, if I have a hundred taxis, some will be in business, others won't and everything comes out in the wash. Hmm. As an individual worker, it's extremely hard for myself to diversify that risk, right? I can't really sort of be an Uber driver and do some teaching and maybe be on another platform at the same time. Yeah, it doesn't really work. And so I think what we saw was just this immense concentration of risk on the individual. Mm-hmm. And that's when things start to break down, right? And so we 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 get to February, March of 2020, and we have a labor market where more and more risk is concentrated on the individual. And that is where it creates the perfect storm for when COVID hits.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you see any differences in, in, in the storm in the UK compare, in comparison, for example, with uh, Austria that are important or Germany that are important here and that, that need our specific attention? Um, so, yes, I think we did see some some pretty big differences. I think even within
2: countries, and I think this is really important, we see a huge difference in terms of what the impact of COVID is, right? And mm-hmm. so this is where the, the point, you know, Abby talks about the inequality, of Mm -hmm. uh, COVID and and I'm pretty sure she would agree that actually we're not just talking about one dimension of inequality, we're actually talking about a vast number of different dimensions of inequality. Mm -hmm. And so one of the most interesting graphs that I think came out very early from Abby's work was that the impact COVID had on you was very much driven by the kind of riskiness of your setup. It wasn't actually the legal categorization that made a big difference, whether you were an employee or were self-employed. The big difference was whether you had guaranteed permanent working hours or whether you were in some sort of flexible work arrangement. Mm-hmm. And so I think there then we need to start splitting up the conversation into two different dimensions. I think the first conversation we need to have is about people on these flexible work arrangements. Mm-hmm. and people usually in low wage incomes and then the second legal challenge we want to think about is people in more traditional standard well remunerated work because i think abby you'll be able to tell us the exact numbers but there was a near perfect correlation between how much you earn and whether you could work from home or not right was it somewhere around twenty five thousand euros or dollars or pounds that the cutoff lay um
1: yeah so i don't have the precise correlation but absolutely um there's a striking correlation between income and working from home. So if you earn in the UK, like over 50,000 pounds, you can do almost all of your work from home. If you're in the bottom, kind of, if you're in the bottom segment by earnings of the labor market, you can do almost none of your job from home.
0: Yeah. But isn't that obvious? Because the more you earn, the more you need your brain and the less you depend on infrastructure for your work. So I... I mean, infrastructure provided by by the employer. Then, I mean, if 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 I'm a taxi driver earning little money, it's obvious that I need my car. But if I'm a university professor, it's not that obvious that I need my office. So I'm, I I, I mean, it's interesting, but I think it's quite evident, isn't it?
1: It is quite evident, I think. Yeah. But if you still think of things like um, call center work, there there are various forms of low skilled work which are relatively amenable to working from home, but they tend to be concentrated actually. So in more like kind of middle income jobs, yeah. something which is slightly different actually. Let's go against a bit what you just said. Is that what we've seen over the crisis is, of course, that all of us have realised that we could do more of our jobs from home than mm-hmm. we could at the beginning. Part of that is learning. Part is that. Part of that is investments that we, as workers, have made in terms of mm-hmm. better lighting, uh, you know, a better home office setup. Potentially not even subsidised by, mm-hmm. by, by, by our employers. Mm-hmm. The other thing. Um, is that employers have also done a lot to think about how do they move to a world of remote work and non-co-located workers um, Mm. and, um, you know, and monitorers. Um, And so one of the other things that we've seen a lot of over the crisis is greater investment in more monitoring technologies um, and more kind of scheduling technologies to better facilitate Working from home for a wider group of much wider group of workers than was able to work from home at the beginning of the crisis. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So I, I still wonder, Jeremy, as if I may come back to you uh, about this risk point. I I'm 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 I may say um, I I find this very convincing. Obviously that this shift of risks has happened and that it's still ongoing, but I would also like to stress the point that. Um, when we look into the labor law debate, at least in a country like Austria at the moment since March, one of the one of the most evident points that are intensely debated is who is going to take the risk if I have an accident in my home office. Right. So um, the Unfallversicherung uh, as, as a problem, which is, in my view, one of the very, very many, very um, how would I tell? How would I say? very not really complex enough attempts to to understand the situation in which we are, right? So, isn't it just? It's not only the risk; it's also the uh, the uh, the, uh, the complete failure of the legal system to to take care of what really the risks are, and which is not really a risk at all any longer. Would Absolutely. You,
2: and, and actually, just before we get to the home, home office uh, uh, dangers, yeah. let me just quickly finish with the risk and the, sort of the public yeah. health perspective. Let's, let's just finish off on the bottom of the labor market, perhaps first. Yeah. Because one of the things we saw is that what happens as that risk shift, if you concentrate too much risk on an entity that can't actually bear it, yeah. you end up externalizing it. Right. And so actually what ended up happening is that you created all sorts of perverse incentives for self-employed people in very flexible jobs that Mm -hmm. if you were a food delivery courier, for example, even if you were feeling sick, you didn't have legal protection. Right. Mm -hmm. You couldn't actually just be at home and still get paid. So you created early on this system where actually because nobody could afford to stay at home, even if you were feeling sick, you ended up having to go to work and spreading the virus. Right. So actually, I think this is just an example of how if we concentrate too much of that risk on individuals, we end up creating really perverse incentives within the mm-hmm. labor market. And particularly in the public health domain, we saw that really, really strongly.
0: Yeah. Um, so, but let's let Sorry. Go no, on. no. Sorry. Just one. So that means I mean, one request from your perspective would be we would really need to get better understanding about the risks and we need to redistribute them in a more even way, right? Uh, in, uh, also from a public health point of view, that's that's the argument, correct? Okay. Exactly,
2: right? And that, that's similar to the gig economy argument. It's yeah. uh, the way you think about employment protection mm. in a macro level, it's not yeah. just about protecting the workers. It's also yeah. about consumer protection. It's about creating a level playing field in the market. Yeah. And there's lots of empirical work that is essentially saying that when it comes to trading off risk, the employment mm. relationship is by far the best and also the most efficient way of doing it.
0: Yeah. And would you help me in assessing in how far the European Union or a country such as Austria or the UK were successful in in redistributing this risk prior to COVID? So, I mean, your book was published in 2018 and then we still had two years, right? Did anything important happen in this period? Um there were
2: a few things. So I can speak a yeah. bit about EU uh, labor law. And so there, for example, one, one attempt you saw in terms of the, the commission and in terms of legislation was mm. the predictable and transparent working conditions directive. Right? Mm. So that was an attempt by the union legislator to actually take some of that risk out, create a bit more in terms of predictability. Um, The reality of the situation, though, is that a lot of it comes down to domestic labour law, and actually the union's regulatory competence in this area is limited, right? So Article 153, paragraph 5 of the TFEU, for example, forbids the union for getting involved in any questions surrounding wage setting, which Mm. will be one really important tool. Um, Mm -hmm. One specific example where I think the Austrian experience, to to the limited extent that I'm familiar with is is um, superior in terms of its design to what we have in the UK, is that when it comes to tax and social security, self-employment and employment get treated in relatively similar ways. Mm-hmm. Right? So one big problem we had in the UK before the crisis was that taxes for self-employed were significantly lower than for the employed which mm-hmm. then creates the incentive that in the short term, and you know, as humans, given how time and consistent we are, we always look at the short term, mm-hmm. I might actually be able to earn an extra pound per hour if I agree with my employer that I'm going to be self-employed. Right? Yeah. Because I'll have lower contributions, both in terms of social security and insurance. And so actually the tax system created this really weird incentive to shove people into self-employment. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that as the UK government... Um, has tried for many years to level out those systems, but the political resistance has been too strong. Mm-hmm. And so when COVID first came in, the UK government introduced the scheme to support furloughed workers, employees. Mm-hmm. And then very quickly, there was also strong political demand to create a similar system for the self-employed.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the government did indeed introduce such a scheme. Yeah. And it's really interesting when you watch the video where Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, introduces the scheme, he says, today, I'm giving protection to the self-employed, but I'm saying this now, when it comes to the next budget, I'm going to start taxing you in the same way I tax the employed. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, actually the UK government at that point did announce the fact that they were going to move to a model that looks much more like the Austrian tax and social security system.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So that would be some kind of a positive outcome then, right? So what, one of the very few positive uh, exactly. perspectives. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> interesting, um,
1: interesting. But, well, yeah, sh- go ahead. Shall we go back to thinking about yeah, um, what happens uh, working
2: from home? So now yeah. we're shifting as a rep from the bottom of the labour market yeah. to the top of the labour market. Yeah. Um, and uh, Ali and I, when we were giving talks about this, we used to make everybody do a survey where people could mm-hmm. sort of estimate how much of the job they could do from home. Mm-hmm. And of course, the answer was always by definition, if you can watch a web- webinar in the middle of the day, then chances are, you can do a lot of your work um, mm-hmm. from home. Mm-hmm. And Let's start with the health and safety points you made, right? So particularly mm-hmm. in the UK, I don't know whether that's true in Austria as well, but given the, you know, horrible narrow staircases that lots of British houses have, um, one thing that started happening early on is a massive increase in broken legs and broken ankles as people are sort of working in the home office. And then you get the knock on the door from your Amazon delivery. And as you rush down very quickly, people end up twisting and breaking their ankles, etc. cetera.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah.
2: that then led precisely to that question sort of less yeah. facetiously that you raised about how do norms apply? And I think that was the biggest challenge we saw as it were for more traditional stable jobs. And that is that employment law has essentially grown up around a series of stereotypes of what work looks like. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest challenge in some of the COVID crisis, that the way a lot of the norms are designed was suddenly challenged, right? Because one of the key sort of stereotypes that all of employment regulation was designed about was that we work in an office. Mm -hmm. that we work in a space that's actually controlled by our employer Mm -hmm. and that therefore there are lots of duties Mm -hmm. imposed on them Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. i remember very when i when i worked in hanover there was a parking house in hanover and there were always two numbers for for where, where cars could park behind each other and the reason for this was because all the workers came at the same time when the parking house was was designed and therefore it was obvious that you didn't have any problem in leaving because the other guy would also leave uh-huh. at the same time right and 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 things have changed significantly since the 50s when this was built obviously uh but isn't that a, a fundamental problem for for the whole labor market law in a way right that that the that the tradition of the whole field goes back to the late 19th early 20th century and it's um it's evading everywhere um would you agree with this? And if so, what does that mean for a legal discipline if the, uh, if the empirical factors leading to this discipline evade?
2: Absolutely. I think we need to be very careful though about what the sort of stereotype is, right? So mm. I think one problem that we've already had and I've, I've written with a colleague at uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Eynad Albin about this a bit, is that some stereotypes, for example, where the fact that you had a single employer that mm. you had a very long-term open-ended relationship, um, that usually you were a man who was a single breadwinner in the family who was a member of a trade union. right? right? And actually as a result of a lot of these stereotypes, um, the law ended up uh, creating what colleagues of mine here in Oxford like Mark Friedland have called the paradox of precarity, right? So mm. one of the real challenges uh, historically as a result of these stereotypes is that in a sense, the further you get away from those stereotypes, Socioeconomically, mm-hmm. the more you will need legal protection because you'll mm-hmm. be in a precarious, flexible work arrangement. Mm-hmm. But counterintuitively, legally, the less likely you are to be protected. Mm-hmm. So, somebody like you and me, who are in permanent, tenured, open ended relationships, legally would enjoy all these protections, where mm-hmm. somebody who works for a gig economy platform or on a, on a precarious zero hours contract wouldn't have that kind of protection, right? Mm -hmm. And so this paradox of precarity again has been around for at least 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. We're now seeing it reach even the very core of the protected categories, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's suddenly when then we start thinking about, okay, what if the employer can no longer control when people work, right? Mm -hmm. So working time protection is a really good example. It's very clear in the jurisprudence of the court of justice that the employer has all sorts of duties to record when you know working time takes place has duties to actually actively ensure that workers can take their rest breaks mm-hmm. it's really difficult to think about a world where i work from home how my employer could possibly make sure that they fulfill their legal duty that i don't work more than protected hours or i take my minimum night rest for example mm-hmm. so i think that those have been the real challenges
0: yeah, but I had uh, Professor Matzal in this series, whom you certainly know, uh, and we debated on this a little bit, and he said, mm-hmm. actually, there is no real problem here, because there is a fundamental in the, in the contract, which is trust, and, and, and the employer can simply trust that the employee uh, puts the right hours into, you know, in the timesheet, and that's, that's the solution, right? Would you agree with this?
2: Well, I mean, I, I, you know, far, far would it be
0: from me for disagreeing yeah.
2: Um, yeah. with uh, with yeah. colleague Watzell. I think yeah. it very much depends on the kind of uh, relationship. I mean, yeah. I think what we are seeing empirically is that uh, lots of employers don't trust their workers, mm-hmm. right? I think, I mean, perhaps the single, single biggest shift we saw as a result of this pandemic for homework and for people in white-collar jobs mm-hmm. is the extent of electronic surveillance we now see, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's fascinating when you think back. Imagine... I mean, even when I was writing the application for my ERC grant, which looks at algorithmic management and, and how sort of algorithms manage our working life, when I wrote that grant application in the summer of 2019, mm-hmm. um, algorithmic management was still a fairly small segment of professional white-collar jobs, mm-hmm. right? And imagine even in February, today, a year ago, imagine if the University of Vienna or the University of Oxford would have said to us, by the way, we expect you to start installing a camera in your home. And we mm-hmm. will start, you know, expect you to teach from home and record what's going on in your living room. Mm-hmm. That would have been a massive outcry. There would have been a mm-hmm. huge amount of resistance. And mm-hmm. so one thing I think that we see sort of overnight is this paradigm shift of precisely because most employers don't trust their workforce saying, I now expect you to have a camera switched on all the time. Mm-hmm. And I expect you to install Microsoft Teams on your home computer. And then therefore, let me see exactly what you're doing, when you're doing and how you're doing it. Now, mm. that sort of stuff used to exist in the gig economy. And mm. if you were working for a platform like Upwork or Amazon Mechanical Turk, you had to install a plugin that would take screenshots and then you could be monitored. But mm. now suddenly that's come to just about every job that is doing mm. remote work.
0: Mm. Mm. But uh, I mean, it, not not so much in academia, right? I mean, in, in uh, uh, at least not. I, I I would disagree with this. So if you look yeah. on Twitter, so actually, I think he's based in Vienna. So
2: there's uh, Wolfie Kristol, who's an Austrian mm. sort of privacy uh, scholar mm. and, and yeah. activist. And um, he's done some really interesting stuff in terms of Microsoft Teams. So mm. um, at Oxford University, we use Microsoft Teams to organize a lot of our online teaching. And mm. the amount of snooping and surveillance that can go on of students there is is pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I think. You can, I mean, the students are a different story, right? I mean, when it comes to exams in particular, that's a very different story from the day-to-day experience, at Mm. least at the University of Vienna, I would say. I don't, I'm not sure about Oxford, but I would assume that it's quite similar there. So I I, I think, uh, but there's one important point here, which you make, which is that we get used that suddenly a camera ends up in our living room, just like in what we are doing at the moment. In some Mm. way the the employer expects us to do this and to agree with this. but i'm not that uh, convinced that the surveillance part of your argument is also true which means that that employers really use this to better control what employees are doing my perception would be at least in these high ranked jobs like ours the employer even gets more freedom not to do this because he already trusts the employee in this pushing the employee in in the way to even more work on on the issues um, in in the, in this newly found freedom. Uh, isn't it is, wouldn't that be well
2: see what my personal experience is yeah. that I mean obviously there's questions to the degree of control that is exercised, you're completely right that there's very little control that can be exercised in academia. Mm. However, when it comes to surveillance and data collection, I think there Mm. has been a huge shift Right? Because for example, if I go and you know give a lecture, when I start my lecture, when you know who I interact yeah, yeah. with, there's no way of recording that short of you know the dean having a little spy sit in every lecture and take notes. I mean, that's certainly yeah. not how it happened here. Yeah. Whereas now suddenly every time you interact with a student through an online platform a record of that is created. True, absolutely And and even if the substance isn't recorded, you still have the metadata. So in that sense, I think this is a big change. I mean, uh, I used to joke that, you know, when we here in college signed up for lunch or ordered Mm -hmm. wine um, Mm -hmm. in the evening, it would all be done on a paper form. There was no way of ever tracking that. Mm -hmm. All of these systems have migrated online. So I think, yes, we might be in a position where they're not used for explicit control purposes, But there's also more subtle ways. Right. So um, another feature that Microsoft Teams has built in is something called Cortana, which we don't have activated. But I know, for example, colleagues at London universities have activated where every individual worker gets a feedback email in the evening with tips and suggestions to increase their productivity. Mm. Right. And they get told, you know, Nicholas, you only send 15 emails to students today. On average, a professor sends Mm. 25 emails to students. Why don't you send more emails to students? Mm. That sort of thing exists and and is being used.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I I completely buy this argument. And it very much brings me to my argument, which is data protection is one of the fields that clearly have become more (laughs) important or more obvious, I would say. I completely agree with this. Um, And but, but the question then would be whether this is a labor law related phenomenon or whether it's just you know, the general trend of, of the crisis that, that, that we produce more data, we record more data and we therefore can use more data as a society. So I, I'm not that yet, I would like to invite you again to, to, to emphasize a little bit more about the labor related part of this. Is there anything, anything specific uh, that, that needs our attention when we look into this from a labor law point of view? And do we need any reform in that field?
2: That's a super point. Um, And one, actually, we have a weekly discussion group where this Mm. term, we're looking specifically at employment, the data protection and thinking about this. So, look, I'm not trying to make a normative claim in what I'm about Mm. to say that employment data protection is more important than other areas of data protection. Mm. But I think the claim I am happy to make is to say that there are some concerns that are particularly acute in the employment relationship. Mm -hmm. So I think there's certain and where certain elements of general data protection simply don't work. Right. Mm -hmm. So you think about the structure of the employment relationship for the vast majority of workers, the the extreme inequality of bargaining power that underpins the contractual arrangement. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the amount of control that can be exercised over workers does mean that certain data protection principles like Take consent as an example, simply Mm. have to be uh, uh, rethought or at least attenuated in various ways. Mm. Mm. So I think, uh, yes, absolutely, we are collecting more and more data on everybody and sort Mm. of digital breadcrumbs on everybody. But I think the employment context is quite specific in terms of what we can do. And okay. so I think there's an increasing, so, you know, these are debates that go back to the late 1990s with people like mm-hmm. Spira Sumitis saying, you know, we need not just an omnibus data protection regime, but we actually need a specific employment work-related data protection regime. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's even at least in principle recognized in article 88 of the GDPR, mm-hmm. but the, the reality does that actually then play out? I think is very much the opposite. And, yeah. and you know, it, in March last year, you know, i i without having any data i would be extremely surprised if the vast majority of employers dutifully conducted a dpia before mm-hmm. they said you need to switch on your cameras at home right now
0: yeah absolutely and also i mean but but also this consent issue right in march everyone simply turned on his or her video cam and and started <coughs> to work from home and nobody really cared about uh, whether whether there was any freely given informed blah blah consent given here and that is probably a mass phenomenon that is, has already happened in the gig uh, economy for many years right so it's 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 in a way bringing gig economy phenomenons into everyone's day-to-day uh, experience and and i'm wondering whether this helps um, helps uh, in in better understanding the the legal deficits and the needs and also the requirements in the gig economy to be transposed into the general aspects of labor market and labor market laws would you would you would you agree that that the understanding has increased here and that we that the debate has become easier absolutely absolutely
2: yeah. because i think there was often a sense of sort of saying you know i i, I shan't name names but i remember being in brussels uh, on on a panel once and uh, talking about some of the office-based surveillance that you can now do with um, Mm. you know companies where you have badges that measure where you're in the office and who you talk to Mm. and next to me sat uh, one of the senior lobbyists of one of the big um, gig platforms and afterwards they said to me I couldn't ever imagine working for a company that uses this kind of technology (laughs) on their workers and (laughs) I said well there's a a certain irony in that position isn't there Um, because of course there was a sense of like you know well this happens to gig workers, this doesn't happen to us. And I've, I've long been fighting against that dichotomy because yeah, it's a mm. terrible dichotomy. And so, yes, we absolutely see, see those kind of challenges. I think it then also raises sort of linked point and that is this danger, and Abby hinted at this, right? So mm. as well, to, to put it very flippantly, if we can all do your jobs from home, mm. that means your job can be done from anywhere, mm. right? And, mm. and for a lot of jobs, that then means we can actually take your job We can Mm -hmm. split it up into lots of individual tasks Mm -hmm. and then we can put them on the internet and um, uh, have people bid for them, right? So I think that also leads to interesting questions. This sort of one thing that we saw in the gig economy was very much a taking off a job, Mm -hmm. breaking down into individual tasks Mm -hmm. and then saying, actually, I'm no longer going to pay you for your overall job. I'm only gonna pay you for individual tasks. And in fact, that also means I'm only going to pay you for things that I can actually measure and monitor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that's a trend that's also now coming to workplaces so to go back to this productivity example when you get your email in the afternoon saying you know how productive you've been today Mm -hmm. of course the notion that you could mathematically measure productivity is is pretty crazy for a lot of jobs right because i don't know your experience Because my experience is that actually i'm not my most productive when my computer switched off and i don't look at my email and i don't speak on the phone but i sit there and read and think and write mm. and then the moment i start switching on my computer and have calls and other things actually i become a lot less productive academically mm. yet in terms of what a computer would measure and judge me on it would be the exact opposite it's mm. it's the things that are least productive in terms of thinking and and writing that are, are the things that get measured as productivity
0: yeah yeah and, and that that's in particular very true for academia, right? And and one of the basic problems of academia and monitoring how academics work, in my view, that a lot of what we are doing is not to be put into numbers and figures and to be counted, right? And and at the same time, university departments do have an interest in in in, in investing their money properly and and in measuring what people are doing. And and it's very, I mean, this is an ongoing debate, obviously, obviously, mm. uh, but probably also true for a lot of other highly skilled jobs right not only for absolutely yeah absolutely yeah but i mean one of the ironies of this crisis is that the gig economy is one of the very few really profiting out of this so if you if you look into the uh the the reports on 2020 from facebook or google or how uh, amazon etc i mean they really really um, <laughs> uh, use the crisis well. Um, so, isn't that? I mean, how, how how do you look into this then, from from a from your point of view? I mean, you have been writing now um, on this for quite some time, and and one of the outcomes is that they do not really do worse, but better, um, which makes it probably more difficult for for low skilled uh, people on the labor market not to end up in a situation where they need to decide on. Freely give consent to work for one of those. So, yeah. what 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 to do then, uh, from from an academic point of view and also from a political point of view, when 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 the crisis um, increases the probability that the risks that you are talking about are unevenly distributed.
2: It's a great question. And look, I think it's really important to reemphasize that I've never been completely against the gig economy. Mm-hmm. Right. I there is a camp of people who say actually, the gig economy is so bad, we should just ban it and it shouldn't exist as a labor market phenomenon. I don't agree with that. I think there is a space in labor markets for the gig economy. Hmm. What we have to do, on the other hand, and this goes back to this idea of the level playing field, Hmm. is to say you're not fundamentally distinct from other forms of work. The idea that just because I use an app to tell you when to work and what to do does not mean that therefore labor law doesn't apply. So I think the single most important policy challenge is enforcement. Mm. It's all about taking the existing norms and saying, just because you call somebody a rider, that doesn't make her not an employee, right? Mm. Just because you use technology doesn't mean that these people are no longer applied.
0: Mm. I
2: think enforcement is key here.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you see any progress in enforcement since nineteen and since two thousand and eighteen when you wrote the book?
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes. So what we've started to see is that um, Supreme Courts all over Europe and indeed mm-hmm. globally are starting to recognize that these people are employees.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So you look at Paris, for example, um, big judgment in the court of Cassation, um in early 2020. Mm-hmm. <coughs> you look at the Court of Appeal um, here in the UK, we're just waiting for the Supreme Court decision.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Most recently, I think in February, no, in January, um, oh no, last, now, in the autumn last year, the Spanish Supreme Court in Globo again found that workers were employees
0: mm-hmm.
2: on these platforms. So I think we are starting to see a very clear trend in that direction.
0: But that is only is is that is that true only for the Uber drivers, or is it an overall phenomenon for the whole gig economy? So would you would you give the same? I think statement? it's a broader. Yeah.
2: I think it's a broader phenomenon for the entire mm-hmm. gig economy because mm-hmm. I think in a sense. Um, Uber is very often sort of, you know, the cannery in the coal mine. Very often mm-hmm. it's being used as a test case. But for mm-hmm. example, in uh, the Spanish case, it wasn't about Uber drivers. It was about delivery cyclists uh, for a company mm-hmm. called Glovo, who are a bit like Fudora or Deliveroo. Mm-hmm. So I think we're starting to see those trends much more broadly.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, because I just I just happened to read today a newspaper article about all these uh, food delivery services and in how far those people are not properly employed and 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 that one of the outcomes of the crisis is that more and more people work for those and 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 the market uh the labor market as a whole has become much more competitive for people needing such jobs so that it has become easier for such companies to find people freely agreeing that uh they are not properly Absolutely. (laughs) absolutely look
2: i wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that at all and in a sense you know i think we're starting i guess it's also the the point from which we're starting Mm -hmm. was extremely aggressive non-compliance particularly Mm -hmm. by major platforms right Mm -hmm. really really aggressive non-compliance and i think that's a picture that's slowly changing but Mm -hmm. but in terms of saying look there's now more people who are dependent on these jobs if anything Mm -hmm. that increases the importance of enforcement right and i think that increases the importance of saying from a policy perspective precisely mm. because you don't want these risks to be just out there for the state ultimately to cover. Yes. I mean, somebody has to take the risk in the labor market, right? It's mm. either going to be the employer or mm. the individual, but as the individual can't take it, it's going to get externalized to the state, to all of us, mm. right? Mm. If all these people don't pay their taxes and their insurance, well, then all of us are eventually going to pay for their insurance, for their pension, et cetera. So I think mm. if anything, the more people are exposed to these kind of risks, the more there is a pressure for us to say actually we need to enforce existing norms. We need to ensure there is a level playing field.
0: Okay. So that let's see whether you're right. That that is a kind of optimistic view on the on the situation. But this, this level playing field, perhaps there that, that would be perhaps a nice last answer question here. The level playing field is a topic which is not only uh, used in labor law, but it's also used in consumer protection, in telecom, in platform law, and so on. And my, my, my guess would be whenever we talk about a level playing field, something is truly wrong in the market we are talking about. Because, and, and, and because the, the wrongness just triggers this level playing field argument. And it has taken many years until something has become so wrong in the market that somebody comes up with this level playing field. So that the law is always too late and 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 comes in in a scenario where already the the society or the technological environment has developed so intensively that nothing will nothing fundamental will change. And one one example for this would be the the, the enormous success. Of the platforms in this crisis at the moment, would you would you would you agree with this? So for two questions here. The first one is level playing field, not only in label law. Question mark. Two, label, argument of level playing field as an indicator that something is truly really wrong, tr- truly wrong, and and the law comes too late. Question mark. <laughs> uh,
2: let's go to your second question first, yeah. um, and let's actually split it up into two bits. Um, so I love the idea that the level playing field comes in when when things are really wrong. The thing mm-hmm. I disagree with you, and this could just be the naivete of youth, um, the thing I still would disagree with you is that it's too late to then do anything mm-hmm. about it, right? Mm-hmm. So again, I think another big realization here, and this is, this is also worth saying, the vast majority of employers I work with and come across are not actually interested in fake classifying their workers in exploiting various precarious labor relationships, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that's also a really important role to say that it's existing employers Mm -hmm. who are also to some extent getting hugely undercut by this, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think there's this broader realization that in terms of pushing back, it's not just a question of worker protection. There's Mm -hmm. a broader coalition we can have here to re-level the playing field. Mm -hmm. Um, But when it comes to your original point, you know, is the fact that we even have to talk about the level playing field, Mm. Um, an indication that things are terribly wrong. Yes, mm. I agree. Um, mm. And that's a sort of maybe to conclude. That's a puzzle, particularly at the European level. I've, I've long been thinking about, is that somehow the enforcement of employment law norms seems to be much weaker compared to other things. Right. Mm. So you compare um, environmental law, say, with employment law, mm. and you know, if you think about what's the risk of breaching some of my employees rights or pouring some poisonous toxic stuff down a river. When you mm-hmm. think about the enforcement and the penalties, mm-hmm. for some reason, environmental law is much more strictly enforced than, than would be labor law by comparison. And so I think yeah. there's, there's a real challenge there as well, how we take different elements of the regulatory key
1: mm-hmm. and
2: then have very, very different um, proofs, right? I mean, even think about data protection, the possible yeah. maximum fines for breaching the GDPR. And compare them with possible maximum fines for breaching equality legislation. Yeah. And, you know, you can then ask yourself, is that really the underlying normativity and the sort of hierarchy of norms that we yeah. would intuitively subscribe to?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's plenty of work to go- to do for you in the next years, Jeremy. So I'm quite sure about this. And I'm very, very much looking forward to reading about the outcomes of your ESC grant and all the other papers that you are uh, writing on at the moment, what is the next big book, book project that you are on at the moment? What, what do you so, know so, about? Would you like to share already something about that? And if so? Um,
2: yes, what? in <laughs> fact, I'm just, doing, I'm just doing the proofs for it. Um, okay. So it's, uh, it's very imminent. Um, uh, I was one little lockdown project and mm-hmm. perhaps also a sort of um, a Brexit soothing project. Um, a colleague of mine here in Oxford, Sanja Bogovic and I, we've written a little book called Great Debates in EU Law. Oh. And we've actually tried to write a, a contextual okay. um, analysis of different debates of EU law. Okay. We try and take the reader through a lot of the broader sort of socioeconomic background to the evolution of union law and okay. how that explains a lot of the big debates that we see in union law.
0: Okay, and is there a chapter on COVID in it already? Or was it... <laughs> uh,
2: there is the concluding chapter. So we have a yeah. concluding chapter where we okay. think about how the tensions we show up in the book. So we, we yeah. show a couple of tensions in EU law yeah. um but the difference between enabling the union and and restraining it mm-hmm. and in the concluding chapter we think about three particular challenges and mm-hmm. the three challenges going forward we think about is covid is digitalization and it's the various rule of law debates that we've also been seeing, oh. particularly in the context of member states like uh, Hungary or Poland.
0: Yes, okay, okay. So this is right in the heart then of this of this little podcast here. I'm very much looking forward to this and I hope that I may invite you again when it's out uh, to discuss this with you oh. then again. Thank you so much, Jeremias, for your time. Thank you so much, AB, who needed to leave us, unfortunately, some minutes ago. So this is the reason why you don't see her. She did not. There's no technical problem now. <laughs> this was planned. Um, thank you to our Listeners, um, my apologies for the technical glitches at the, at the beginning, but I think we finally made it quite well. Jeremy, it's my pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Take care and Thank stay safe. Thank you very af- much
2: indeed for hosting us.
0: Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, so we are offline. Uh,